The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Oh, good morning. <laughs> uh, it's good to see you all this morning. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here. And friends, it is uh, good to be with you. If you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you are here, and uh, you are joining us in the midst of the sermon series looking at the book of 1 John. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in the Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you, or we'll be projecting the passage in just a moment on the screens. But we'll be in 1 John 3, and we'll look at uh, the second half of this chapter this morning. Now, if you have been with us over the last number of weeks, you've already heard me say that in 1 John, we have this repetition of a variety of themes. We've seen these themes being repeated again and again, themes like sin and repentance, like assurance and examination. And one of these themes is the theme of love, right? We've already heard it a few times in this book. We're going to hear about it again in a couple weeks, but, but it shows up again this morning, this theme of love. And it shows up again and again in this book because this is one of the central themes of 1 John. But it's not just one of the central themes of 1 John. Love is actually one of the dominant themes of the whole of Scripture, I mean, do you remember what Jesus said when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22, Jesus directed us to love. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see, what Jesus is telling us by quoting the Old Testament, that's what those are, they're quotations from the Old Testament, he's telling us that the, the center of obedience to God is love. Our love for him and our love for one another. Our love for neighbor. That that is at the center of what it means to follow after God. That's where Jesus turned our attention, that's where John directs us this morning. And so let's follow along in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because he keeps, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. 
that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we come and we acknowledge that in order for us to love as you have loved us, we need your help. And that left to our own devices, left to ourselves, we would harden our hearts and they would become calloused. And so we need your spirit to soften our hearts, to turn our calloused hearts into hearts of flesh. And so we ask that you would increase our love for you and for one another as we come to this passage. We pray for your help. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Kat and I first met one another because we were working together. Uh, we both were hired to work and do uh, campus ministry, college ministry in South Carolina. We both graduated from college and we were doing, uh, spending time on college campuses and working at a church in Greenville. And, and part of our time spent on campus was also spending time in the office doing the administrative work of this ministry. And Kat's office was right across the hall from mine. And so in, in those early days of getting to know her, of, of being attracted to her, of wanting to spend time with her, of falling in love with her, she would find things on her desk when she showed up, things like little notes, little cards from me. She would find flowers sometimes sitting on the corner of her desk when she arrived. She would find candy or chocolates that I knew that she liked, that she could eat throughout the day. She would find invitations to lunch. This is how I expressed to her my interest in her and eventually my love for her. And this took place over the course of our time dating, over our engagement, and, and y'all, y'all know the end of the story. You know how it turned out <laughs> in my favor. I was pretty smooth back then. You know, I kind of, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was not smooth at all. I mean, I'm wearing tweed. There's nothing smooth about this. So, but, um, but anyway, at some point along the way after we were married, Kat uh, pointed something out to me. You see, at some point along the way, uh, the inkwell had dried up and the flowers stayed at the store. And the only candy and chocolate I was buying was the candy and chocolate I was going to eat myself. (laughs) And Kat pointed this out. She told me about this. And it wasn't this like cold observation that she was making, but it was a way of telling me that she wanted me to show her love like that again. And she wanted to see that affection again. She wanted to hear my words and notes and see my love and flowers. And so I heard this from her. I took these words to heart. And as a caring and in-tune and sensitive young husband that I was, when she brought this to my attention, I got very defensive. (laughs) Because that's what we do, isn't it? I got defensive and I told her, I was like, what do you mean show you more love, show you more affection? You know I love you. I mean, I stood before a church of friends and family and and I stood before God himself and made a vow that I will love you until the day I die. I've said this to you, right? I put a ring on your finger and every morning when we wake up, you hear I love you. And when I go off to the office, I say I love you. And some of the last words on my lips before we go to bed are I love you. And so how can you doubt? How can you question? You know I love you. But Kat wasn't doubting my love. She wasn't doubting my affection. No, she acknowledged all those things. Yes, Penny, I've heard you say those words time and again. 
But what she was telling me was that love, as that 90s song goes, is more than words. Love is more than words. Love is demonstrated. That's what Kat was telling me on that day, and that's what John is telling us in this passage. We see it in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, John is telling us that love is demonstrated in action. Now, when we hear the word love, I'm sure for many of us, we think of romantic love, right? The love between a husband and a wife or someone that we're interested in, right? That significant other. Or maybe the love that we think about is familial love, the love of a child, the love of a father or a mother, the love of a sibling. That those are the kind of places that we turn to when we hear the word love. And certainly this passage speaks to those occasions and circumstances, but, but notice that John's actually not talking primarily about romantic love or familial love. John is talking primarily about the love of the church. The love that God's people would have for one another. In verse 11, he says, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. You see, John is calling us to love one another, and really he's just repeating a teaching that he heard firsthand from Jesus. Because you remember in John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So do you hear what Jesus was saying? That people will know that we follow him. They will know that we are his. They will know that we are his church, not because we read the biggest books or because we have the most precise theology. Though, don't hear what I'm not saying. That is very important. And it's not because we get the most likes on social media or because we decry the loudest the horrors of this world. No. No, people will know that we are his because we love. Because we love. That, y'all, is the defining characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. And that's not Penny pontificating. That's Jesus. That's John. It is the defining characteristic of the Christian. And to stress this, John actually gives us the antithesis of what love is when he gives the example of Cain. He says in verse 12, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So so John is invoking that Old Testament story of Cain and Abel. You remember Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's first boys? Right? And they didn't get along very well to the degree that Cain shows his lack of love, his hatred for his brother, by killing him. You see, his action showed he did not love. And John summarizes Cain's situation and warns us in verses 14 through 15 when he says, Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see, Cain's actions revealed he hated his brother and was lacking in love. So what does love look like? What are the actions that express love? Well, well, John tells us love is true, right? He says love indeed and truth. 
Now, I, I know some of you have heard me say this before, and, and I know it's not original to me. I've heard it somewhere else, but that love isn't unconditional affirmation. That's sometimes how people want to appropriate love. Love is simply unconditional affirmation. If you love me, you are going to affirm everything about me. Every word that I say, every thought that I think, everything that I do. If you love me, you will affirm everything about me. And if you don't affirm everything about me, then clearly you do not love me. Y'all have heard this. But, but that's not love. Love isn't unconditional affirmation because love is concerned with truth. You see, it's actually loving when we go to a friend and we say to them that they have sinned. And we say to them that th their words or their actions or their deeds or whatever it is that, that it actually hurt us or hurt someone else. It was loving when a friend of mine showed up in my office in St. Louis and said those very words to me. The way you spoke, the way you acted, it was sinning against me. My friend in that moment was actually showing great affection and love for me. He was showing love and affection for me, not because he affirmed what I did know, but because he brought the truth to bear upon what I did. You see, love is concerned with truth, but, but here is where we need to also do some examining of our hearts and our motivations. Because the truth is, is that sometimes we bring the truth in very unloving ways. Right? We use the truth like a sledgehammer to destroy. Right? Maybe we're speaking the truth, but it's not out of love for that person. We're speaking the truth as a way of winning the argument or looking better than another, or for our own self-righteousness. But y'all, that's not love. No, you see, loving someone in deed and truth, it, it ultimately isn't about us. It's about them. You see, when we bring the truth to bear in another person's life, are, are we actually concerned with restoring them or being right? Are we concerned about building them up or building ourselves up? You see, the action of love is demonstrated in truth. And it's also demonstrated in deed. And the deed that John points us to is the deed of sacrifice. We see it at the end of verse 16 and beginning of verse 17. You ought to lay down your lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? We are to lay down our lives for one another. That's what John tells us. And to give the example, he speaks about those who are in need and those who have the world's goods. Now, now some of us, maybe we hear the world's goods and we think, well, John's talking about like the uber wealthy, the world's goods. He's talking about the one percenters. And so that's not me, so I don't need to worry about it. Maybe that's where you're going in your mind. But actually, as the uh, New Testament theologian Robert Yarborough puts it, John is talking about the person with an adequate, though perhaps not lavish, physical livelihood. The person he's talking about is someone with resources, not extravagant resources, but, but people who are not in want. The person that John is talking about are, are people like us, like the majority of us, people who who when we see others in need, we can use our resources for the sake of others, that we'd actually sacrifice for the sake of others. 
I experienced this firsthand right after I graduated from college. Most of you know that I'm Canadian, and when I graduated from college, my student visa expired. And so for me to continue to live in the United States and continue to work, I need a work visa. And so leading up to graduation, I filled out all the paperwork, I sent it off, I did everything I was supposed to do, and yet there was a delay, right? Big surprise. <laughs> there was a delay. There was a delay, and graduation day came, and, you know, I donned my cap and gown, and I could not work. I had a job on the table, and I wasn't allowed to work because I didn't have a visa. And so for the next few months... I just had to do nothing, really. I mean, I worked out a deal with a friend. I could live with him, and I kind of cleaned up for him, and that's how I paid my rent, but, but I didn't have really an income, and so I lived off of my savings and a little bit that my parents could help me. I wasn't allowed to go back to Canada because if I did, my visa would, my application would expire and all this sort of thing, and so I just had to wait. And there was one weekend I was hanging out with my friend Martin, and Martin and I were just spending the weekend together, having a good time. And at the end of the weekend, I was getting ready to drive back to Greenwood, South Carolina, from Spartanburg, South Carolina, where he was. And Martin said to me, Penny, you know I have a good job. That, that I'm not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but the Lord has provided for me this job at the college, and, and I've never been in need. I've never had want. And so here... And he put a few bills in my hand, and, and I don't remember if it was 25 or 50 or $75. That's actually not the point. The point was, was that in that moment, in that moment, Martin saw my need, and he loved me by going without so that I would not have to. He sacrificed for me. And y'all, I have to tell you that I see many of you doing this very thing. I see it all the time. I see the ways that many of you rally around the sick and the burdened and those who have medical expenses that come out of nowhere. I see many of you using your resources, your money, your homes, your food, and, and you're using them for the sake of others. I see many of you sacrificing for the sake of the people sitting around you. And y'all, that is beautiful. It is loving. It is Christ-like. And that's actually what John tells us love is. You see, love is not only expressed in action, but love is founded on Christ's action. Right? We see it at the start of verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. You see, the reason why we lay down our lives for one another, the reason why we would love one another, is because Christ has laid down his life for us. It's because Christ has loved us. Right? Jesus expresses his love for us, not simply by saying, I love you, you are my people, you are beloved, though he does say that. The way he expresses his love is by giving his life, by sacrificing for us. And what is incredible about this is that Jesus loved us when we were unlovable. Right? It's Romans 5 that tells us that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, while we were weak, while we were the ungodly, that is when Jesus gave his life. That is when he died for us. That's when he showed his love for us. And y'all, that's important for us to remember because it is so easy for us to live as though Christ's love is dependent on our ability to love. 
that, that Jesus loves us because we love. But, but that's not the order, is it? No, Christ loves us and then calls us to love. We so easily reverse that. We so easily turn that. Theologically, it's, it's basing our justification on our sanctification. It's saying that Christ loves us because we love, but, but if you're going to do that, base Christ's love on your ability to love, then the truth is, is that you will never love enough. You'll never love well enough, long enough, or deep enough. See, that will only bring condemnation because the truth is, is that we have and are going to and will fail. I have failed to love well. There is no doubt in my mind. There are times in my life where I have not loved God's people, my family, my neighbor as I ought. And the same is true of y'all. And I'm not the one who needs to tell you that because we know it in our hearts, don't we? We know it in our hearts. No one has to tell us we failed. We, we feel that conviction. I mean, that's actually what John is talking about in verses 20 and 21 when he talks about our hearts condemning us. He's telling us that if, if you're a Christian, someone doesn't need to, someone can point out your sin and fallen short. And when we're honest with ourselves, we're like, you don't even know the half of it, dude. Because you don't know our hearts and you don't know the hurtful words that have never been uttered on our mouths. You don't know the wicked thoughts that we entertain in our minds and you don't know the shameful desires that we flirt with in our spirits. But we do. Right? I mean, as Reformed Presbyterians, we are very good at knowing we are very bad. And it's when our hearts condemn us that we need the assurance of Christ's love. And that's what John tells us in verses 19 through 20. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So listen to that. Listen to why that is comforting. God knows your heart. He knows even the things you don't know and you don't realize. He knows our hearts, and this is comforting because even though he knows our hearts, he is greater than our hearts. That's what John says. He is greater than our hearts. He is greater than the condemnation of our hearts. You see, the fact that God knows everything about us doesn't drive us into deeper condemnation. Instead, it drives us to greater appreciation, greater thankfulness, greater worship, greater love. That he knows me and you, and he still loves us. I mean, we sometimes hear it, don't we, on a Sunday morning? When one of us is leading the liturgy, Tobias or Andrew or myself, sometimes as we're moving into the assurance of pardon or coming right after it, we'll say, as great as your sins are, what? God's grace and his love is greater still. God is greater than our hearts. That gives us comfort. It gives us assurance that his love is greater still. It was Martin Luther who once said that when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. And, and if I could be so bold as to uh, edit a little bit of Martin Luther. 
when your hearts throw your sin in your face and declare that you deserve death and hell, tell it this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall also be. You see, friends, when we are aware of our sins and we feel the guilt of our transgressions and our hearts condemn us, repent and ask for forgiveness and find comfort that God is greater than your heart. That God's word and Christ's work speak louder to who we are than what our hearts speak to. And, and who are you? If you are trusting in Christ, you are beloved. You are loved by the Savior. You are treasured by the King. That's who you are. That assurance isn't some warm feeling inside of us or our ability to convince ourselves something that is true or not true. What assures us is the objective reality of who God is and his grace and love for us. That is his word of grace. That is his work of love that is greater than our sin, even mine, even yours. And y'all, it's because of that love that we are not only assured that we are his, but it is that love that motivates us to love one another. I mean, that's, that's who we are to be. You know, I've, I've mentioned to y'all before that, that oftentimes when people find out I'm a pastor and they ask what church, I go, well, I'm in the church on 419. Oh, the, the pretty church. <laughs> the beautiful church. The big steeple church, right? That's, your, that's my church. And it is beautiful, and it is pretty, and I love the location, and I love all those things. But, but what I long to hear one day is for someone to go, oh, that's the church where people love. Where people would tell their friends, like, Let, let's not go visit the pretty church. Let's go visit the church where we see love demonstrated. And y'all, it is seen. I see it. That is not a condemnation. That is not a slap. I see it. But that is what we are to be known by. A people that would love one another and care for one another and sacrifice for one another. That's why John says this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. And so friends, take comfort in the love of Christ. Rest assured that you are beloved if you are trusting in him. And let us be a people who love because he first loved us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have shown your love and care for us and that you gave your son, our Lord Jesus, who though he was uh, with you in heaven, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he took on flesh and dwelt among us and lived and died and rose again so that we, enemies, sinners, those opposed to your grace would know your love. And so we pray that in response to receiving that love, that we would live as people of love, caring for one another, loving one another, sacrificing for one another. Let us be a people of love because you have first loved us. And so we ask that you would work and move. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and King. It's in his name that we pray. God's people said together, amen.